I hope you have your Bibles open. I don't know if you got them open earlier, um, but uh, now would be a great time to open your Bible to Psalm 101. Psalm 101 is a psalm about what most people want and need. Psalm 101 is a psalm about a leader with character. I mean, after all, we, um, we go to the polls and we hope to select people we know will keep their word, who will surround themselves with other good people, people who will respect the rule of law. And if you think much about this, this is almost essential for human flourishing. And if we learn anything from history, it's that this has been a problem throughout the entire duration of humanity. You look around the world, it is a problem in every place that you see. And while this kind of character is in short supply in our place and time, Christians have been tempted to compromise their principles as they hold their nose and vote, as some people have said. But this need for character goes way, way back. It doesn't begin with us. Ancient Israel had a very different relationship with God than modern America does. They were established by God himself to live in a covenant relationship that God himself uh, intended to keep. And we currently have no such uh, relationship with God that as a nation we somehow have an agreement with him. They did, but we don't. And so because of that, God had a serious interest in the integrity of the king of Israel. He was interested in a king that would maintain that relationship or an agreement that he had with his people. So that's what Psalm 101 is about. The commitment of the king to be a king with integrity. Now you look at this, and I'm guessing you're, you're tempted to read this like I would be tempted to read this. I am tempted to read it this way. In fact, I'm going to succumb to the temptation, even as I'm talking to you. And that simply is that I want to read this individually. Like this psalm would say, you, Scott, need to have this kind of integrity. Because I do. But I don't think that's the primary use of this psalm. The primary focus of the psalm is the king who needs this kind of integrity. And so, just in case you think, well, it's about a king and we don't have one, so it's for the olden days and not for now, I just want you to remember that as with all of God's um, plan, 
Um, what God demands of people is good for people. What God expects of you will be good for you, including to have a king that has integrity. So that's what Psalm 101 is about. What standard of integrity is necessary for the king to lead his people into a covenant relationship with their God? That's what Psalm 101 is about. It's about the way of integrity. And we see, just with an easy skim of the text, that the way of integrity is lonely and requires effort and clarity on the part of the king to maintain it. We see that vigilance is really going to be inadequate to maintain this degree of character apart from grace. Or if I was to tip my hand a little more so you could see all of my cards, I would say that only Jesus has the character necessary to be the king. So this psalm is written probably early in uh, the life of David. You'll see the very first phrase that is the title. It's not really part of the psalm. It says, a psalm of David. And so they believe David wrote this. And he said, I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord, I will make music. And as you continue to read, it reads as though uh, it was David's intention to uh, live in a certain way when he became king. He wanted to be this kind of king. And so he wrote it down at the beginning of his reign. Likely it was came when he was anointed or maybe when he assumed the throne and he wrote this down for himself and for the people of Israel to know this is what kind of king I aim to be. And so, this is the way that you make this personal if you want. The psalm is about the king and the intent of the king to, to live in a certain way, to lead his people into this covenant relationship with God. But the people themselves have a covenant relationship with God. And so they too need to have the same orientation of life and the same view of integrity that the king does so that they might follow in his footsteps into this relationship with God. So David writes this as his intent, and it's important just to recognize how serious he was about this because he had watched with his own eyes how power had corrupted his predecessor. He had served in Saul's court when Saul, the first king of Israel, made all kinds of compromises that eventually caused his uh, rule to collapse. He recognizes that he doesn't want to be that kind of king. He wants to learn a positive, a positive lesson from a negative example. Because he, he watched 
power corrupt Saul. And it exposed the flaws in his character. And he's purposing in his heart right here in Psalm 101 not to let that happen to him. And so the first thing that he does is he says, this is Psalm of David, I will sing of steadfast love and justice. Steadfast love and justice. This, this does sort of set the table that this psalm is about this covenant relationship that God has established with Israel, this special, uh, unique relationship that no other nation has ever enjoyed. And so the ESV, when it addresses that, it always translates the same idea as steadfast love. So anytime you read the steadfast love of God, what you're to, to, to read is that God is committed to you. He is committed to, not only to love you, He is committed to keep His word so that you can love and trust Him in return. And so, all throughout the Psalms, it praises God for His steadfast love or His covenant love. So David recognizes that God has made a promise to His people and it is that promise God makes to His people, the covenant He makes with His people that forms the basis of the king's relationship with God. And it is a promise God has made to the people that forms the basis of the people's relationship with God. In other words, God relates to His people always through this covenant because His character is faithful. And so really what we have in Psalm 101 is a list of resolutions, and the resolutions begin with a commitment to worship. This is not some secular administration that David is running here. We're used to that. That's not how they did it there. He, they, he recognized that the primary relationship the king had was with God. And so the primary uh, orientation of life toward God is to worship. And so this was some sort of song, some had some kind of tune probably it would be very foreign to our ears and most of us wouldn't even like it. But the lyrics, on the other hand, the lyrics here focus on God's character, on His covenant love and His justice. This love and justice the king highlights are the two pillars of his administration. The king must be faithful to his word must be faithful to God and His Word to Him. And He must execute justice. To have an unjust king, nobody wants that. To have a king that is unfaithful or untrue, nobody wants that. king must reflect God's steadfast love or His covenant love and His justice. And it's important for us. I mean, it's, it's, it's easy for the church of Jesus Christ to say, Oh, we, we love it that God loves us. And we should. I do. I hope you do. I hope that that's the thing you go back to and back to and back to, that the Lord loves you. 
He demonstrated that love and he gave you his son. He loves you. We all get fired up about the steadfast love. But there is a second pillar here, isn't there? Justice. And on the justice side of things, we're not so sure because it sounds to us like punishment, like God's angry, like God's after somebody. And the reality is, when things are wrong, they should be right. And it's God's job to set things right. That's what it means to be just. And I think if the church doesn't recognize that God is about doing that in history, and one day reigning unrivaled so that God's justice will be clear, if the church doesn't recognize that, we'll never recognize mercy. Because we recognize mercy only against the backdrop of judgment. And so it's both this justice and this mercy that find their expression here in the hopes of the king, but also, more than that, in the work of God in the person of Jesus. It is really on the cross that God satisfies his wrath, that he makes the wrongs right so that he might be just and the justifier of those who believe. So the king is committed to steadfast love and justice. Well, how does he put that into practice? What does that look like in the life of the king? And I'm, I'm, let me give you what I'm using as an outline. I think it's the right one. The, verse 1 is sort of the intro, the main ideas that he's going to commit himself to love and justice. Verses 2 through 4 talk about in order to do that, he must have integrity in private. In verses 5 through 8, speak of integrity in public. And I want to just say that's the way that I see this breaking out because integrity in private always precedes integrity in public. You cannot sustain public integrity without private integrity. You can't be the person you need to be in public if you're not the person you need to be in private. And so he begins, in verse 2, talking about his private commitments. Private commitment, in verse 2, I will ponder the way of the blameless, so when will you come to me? I'll walk in the integrity of my heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. He recognizes in his own life that there must be a way of integrity. He recognizes that either he's going to be killing sin or it will be killing him, John Owen said. And so he starts off, verse 2, by saying, I will ponder the way of the blameless. I will ponder the way that is blameless. And it's really that way of the blameless or the blameless way, it shows up three different times in the psalm and sets the theme. The theme is integrity. And there is a way that you, are in, that you have integrity and there's a way that you don't. And so as a king, he says, I'm going to spend my time and energy figuring out what the way of integrity looks like. And then, 
I'm going to give some thought to how I'm going to live in the way of integrity. Which again, I told you that I would surrender to my desire to make this personal, but I do think really all of us can look at that and say, do I give thought when it's quiet to the way of integrity? Do I ponder how I might live a blameless life? What a blameless life looks like in my circumstances? And then, how do I make my life fit that? See, I imagine when he was walking in the garden, when he was composing his music, whatever David was doing, in the, in the quiet and private times, he was giving thought to how do I fit my life to God's way? And so my question for you is, are you doing that too? Do you have times where you set aside, or do you have times when you're, you just pull away and say, what does integrity look like for me? And how am I going to stay on that path? The second thing he says there in verse 2 is, when will you come to me? Again, this reminds me that this is not just a king running a secular administration. His interest is a relationship with the covenant God of Israel. He wants closeness. He wants to know God and have God know him. And so he just says, when will you come to me? It's that covenant relationship with God that really is the delight of the king and the delight of his people. One of the evidences that the king cared about this, that David cared about this, was that he became king in in, uh, Israel and the Ark of the Covenant or the presence of God was somewhere else. It had been captured and it was making its way back into Israel and the king was at a distance from the presence of God. So he set out his intention to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And he got all excited about it. Everybody got excited about it. And they lifted the ark up. It was at somebody's farm. And they lifted it up and they put it on a cart. And the ox were pulled the cart back to Jerusalem. And they didn't make it very far. And the ark hit a pothole. They had potholes back then. And, or the, the cart did, and the cart tipped, and somebody reached out to make sure that the ark of God didn't fall off the uh, cart, and God struck him dead, just like that. And all of a sudden, everyone who was really excited about God's presence returning to Jerusalem now said, wait, we better think about what kind of God we are inviting into our presence. It turns out that they hadn't really paid attention to the details. That God had said, you know, you're not going to just throw my uh, ark on a cart or do anything you want with it. It's to be carried. And so uh, they uh, adjusted and they carried it back to Jerusalem to much celebration. But in that moment, It says in 2 Samuel that David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, when will the ark of the Lord come to me? He expressed the very same thing as he was trying to bring the presence of God back to Jerusalem that he expressed here in the psalm. Being close to the Lord was his priority. 
Then he continues, and he says, I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will walk with integrity of heart in my house. And the thing that that tells me, and the thing that you need to see here, is that the integrity is a matter of your heart. It's not a matter of your external performance. To be integrated or to, to be whole starts on the inside. It comes from the inside to the outside. It doesn't work the other way. And so David's commitment is to walk with integrity of heart. You begin with working on your heart and then your external expression of your uh, integrity follows. So you can see how all of these are his private commitments to be the kind of person and the kind of king that Israel needs. Then his next commitment says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. He's not going to set anything worthless before his eyes. Apparently, your eyes are important. Your eyes you might say, are the gateway to your soul. And so he's very concerned not to set anything in front of his eyes that would be worthless. Eyes are mentioned four times in this psalm as uh, part of integrity, is maintaining control on what you look at. And you'll notice that the standard is high, isn't it? I won't put anything worthless in front of my eyes. It's not merely I won't put anything evil or bad in front of my eyes. It's not, I'm not going to put anything worthless in front of my eyes. Because the things that you put in front of your eyes shape your soul. What you binge or what you watch on your phone or your computer. Maybe even little affirmations you put on your mirror. All of those things shape your life. And so what kind of care are you giving about the things that would shape your life? The things that you put in front of you. And it's amazing how much control you have over it when in fact you think you don't. The king just says, I'm not going to put anything worthless in front of my eyes. I'm not going to be the kind of king who's shaped by things that are worthless. And he continues, I'll hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. And so he's purposed to hate um, the work of those who fall away. Fall away is sort of a, like an accident. But really, the, the word could be translated much more actively, I'm going to hate the work of those who revolt against the king or against God. Those who want nothing to do with the rule of God. I'm not going to have anything to do with them either. And then he says, it shall not cling to me. I just want to pause on that phrase because I think it's important for all of us to recognize that that's what sin does. Sin clings. It's like, it's like you walk through the grass. I don't know if you've ever walked through the grass and those little burrs get in your socks and you walk and they just sort of scrape there like that 
That's what sin does. Sin doesn't let go. And you stop and you pull them out and they don't come out very easy. But sin has a way of clinging, putting its claws in you like that. And whether you accidentally do it, guess what? It becomes easier to accidentally do the next time. Or maybe you just deliberately excuse it and you say, no, this will be okay for me. I'm special. And guess what? It'll be easier to make that same decision again because that's what sin does. It clings. And he says, I'm not going to let it cling to me. I'm purposing in private to be the kind of king that puts away sin. He says, a perverse heart shall be far from me. I'll know nothing of evil. It really is the same message that the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans when he said, I want you to be wise to what is good and innocent concerning evil. I don't want to even know that kind of evil. And so he makes this, he purposes to be that kind of person. And again, implicitly giving the invitation to you and to me to be that kind of person. But after all, he's the king. And so we all need that kind of king to have integrity in private, but also integrity in public. And that's the turn that he makes here in verse 5. When he says, Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful of the land, and they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning I'll destroy all the wicked of the land, cutting off the evildoers from the city of the Lord. He recognizes in private what 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, that bad company corrupts good morals. And he recognizes the deception that that is going to be the case for the king. But then he goes public and he says, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly I'll destroy. And it's interesting to me that he starts his public um, statements with a word about slander or gossip. Because one of the things he knows about the community he's trying to lead is that if they are, if they are chipping at each other, if they're gossiping about each other, if they're telling secrets about each other, it will destroy that community. It will destroy that nation. And so his concern for his people says, I'm not going to let that continue. So the first person he'll destroy is the slanderer. And, and certainly, you have to recognize that's true in our community, isn't it? That's the kind of thing starts going around behind the scenes. It will destroy the community. So he puts a stop to that first. And then he says, whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. And here again, we see the role of the heart. That pride is embraced in the heart and then expressed through the eyes. In other words, you can't hide a proud heart. A proud heart exposes itself and you can tell. And it's ultimately that pride. And you think about it. I mean, it's easy for us, isn't it? I'm just going to say, to look at other people and say, oh, that proud person's hard to get along with. And they are. 
but we seldom look in the mirror and say that proud person is hard to get along with. And what he's saying is that pride does that in relationships. And so the arrogant person who hides it in their heart and expresses it with their eyes, I'm not going to tolerate. Or to put it more positively, humility is what it's going to take for the king to live in a right relationship with God and to lead the people into a right relationship with God. The value of humility in relationship to God can hardly be overstated. It's probably one of the lessons that he learned. And when he was bringing the ark and that guy steadied it and fell dead, David said, okay, I've been too cavalier about my own decision making. I need to submit to the Lord. Then he goes on to say positively now, but we, he's, it's been negative the whole way. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to get rid of these people. I'm not going to do this. But here in verse 6, he turns it uh, to a positive expression. I will look with favor on the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. And so again, we see this blameless way highlighted, this way of integrity. And what we find is that if you plan to walk in integrity, you better have people around you who are full of integrity. Because you will become like the people with whom you spend time. And this is a public commitment of the king who intends to be faithful and walk in integrity that he will surround himself in his administration with people who have integrity in work to be faithful. And so from his cabinet to his servants to uh, all the attendants and officials, they will be people that you can trust. People of integrity. And again, how much would it, just how great would it be to have leaders who do this? He then goes on in verse 7 to say, I want you to know that my administration is going to be an administration built on the truth. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies will continue before me. Because he knows that if you're going to build a kingdom, if you're going to build a church, if you're going to build a family, you're going to have to build it on the truth. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to know what reality is and what it's not. I mean, those of you who are parents know this. This isn't rocket science, is it? You know, something breaks in the other room, you hear it, and you run in there and you say, What happened? What do you get? Three different versions, right? And you know you can't administrate that little situation in your little family with three different versions. You have to get to the truth. Same thing here with the kingdom. This is the king's commitment to the truth. So, his administration will express and be built on what actually is true. 
Then he goes on, really, and concludes the psalm by saying, morning by morning, I'll destroy all the wicked and I'll cut off evildoers from the city of the Lord. He is committed to calling out evil from the kingdom. He is committed to establishing in the city of the Lord. This is one of the reasons I think this, is, this psalm is about the king and not just about any of us who would uh, want to have integrity because he's interested in the city of the Lord, the place of his administration, not having any evildoers in it. He's going to purge them from the kingdom. Now I just want to say, because I've kind of waffled on this throughout the message here, that this is primarily about the king and his commitment to have an administration of truth justice, and covenant love. Because he wants to lead the people into a relationship with God. But you can also apply because those same people need that relationship with God, so they have to build their lives on truth and justice and covenant love. And so, yes, in fact, those of us who want to be in relationship with God can build our lives that same way. But the reality is if this is about the king, and I say, where do I fit in this psalm? As I read this psalm, where do I fit? The reality is, if, if this is about the king, that's not me, so I don't fit there. I'm the subject. I'm one of the subjects of the king. Which means that this warns me as one of the king's subjects that if I'm going to be slanderous, I'm out of here. If I'm an evildoer, I'm leaving the city of the Lord. He is going to call those subjects that are not in that covenant relationship with God out of the kingdom. They have no place with Him. And so we have this psalm, Psalm 101, expressing the intention of this new king to lead a certain way. And as he does, that draws all of his subjects. It draws everyone who also would be in covenant relationship with God into the same path, the, 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 the way of integrity. But really, if you step back just a little bit from here, you sort of get the idea like this is pretty amazing. It would be so great to have a king or a president or a governor that was like this, wouldn't it? And yet our own lived experience in our own elections, in our own political situation tells us that that doesn't happen. But if you read Psalm 101, really, it also suggests this doesn't so much happen. But rather, it points beyond King David to another king who will be like this. One commentator made this observation. He said, this psalm is doubly moving, both for the ideals it discloses. In other words, how wonderful to have a king like this. And for the shadow of failure which history throws across it. Then he says, happily, the last word is not with David, nor with his 
with his historians, but it is with God's Son. We look at King David and we see sort of a um, the first in a line of kings. The first one that points us as king to a greater king. That there's David and then there's a greater David named Jesus. And what this psalm is actually doing is giving the, the standard by which a king would rule. And we know from reading the Old Testament, David didn't do that. He brought in counselors that were not good. He put things like Bathsheba in front of his eyes that did not help him. In fact, destroyed his kingdom. He did not walk in his own house in integrity, but his kids did all kinds of things that bore bad fruit for generations. And so, no matter how well-intentioned he is, he doesn't get us all the way there. And really what we need is not a new president or governor. It's not even King David. Because none of them have the level of integrity that this psalm holds forth. Instead though, we have a king who's so much better than this psalm even communicates. Because we have Jesus as king. His very first message was, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. And he addressed those of us who have integrity problems and invited us to turn and join Him. Because Jesus as King will one day rule with justice and with covenant love. What you see in verse 1 is really the standard by which Jesus will judge. We love it that love is Jesus' thing, and we should. But justice is also His thing. Just like, just like God demonstrated His love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The demonstration of God's love is Jesus. That covenant love God made. So much so that Jesus said on the night He was betrayed, He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He's keeping covenant love of God for us. And so Jesus rules as King in covenant love. But He also comes with justice. He will one day make all the wrongs right. It's what we want in a king. We want the most powerful person to also be the most just person. We want the one with the most authority to also be the most loving person, don't we? And we find that here in Jesus. That not only one day Will He execute justice in this world and make all the wrongs right and wipe away every tear from our eyes and the, the world will be as God meant it to be? And some of you may face that directly. 
the justice in judgment of God. And you need to be warned about the justice in judgment of God. But the other thing you need to know about the justice and judgment of God is that both this covenant love and this justice met in their perfection at the cross. So that all the wrath God has against sin has been satisfied. So that he might be just and the justifier of those who believe. That God did not compromise justice in order to forgive you. But rather, he executed that justice on Jesus and made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And what happened then is, rather than this king coming in justice and getting rid of all his enemies, Jesus came and he died for his enemies so that his enemies might be transformed into friends. In other words, not only is he a king with covenant love and justice, but he himself laid down his life that he might enact both for every single person that would turn to him. And so I would invite you not to vote a certain way in the 2024 election, not to revere King David, but rather to come to King Jesus and be thankful that you have a king that is true and executes justice and is loving and merciful. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, there is, there is no king like Jesus. Would you help us to love and to trust him? Father, I thank you that all of the things that King David set out to do, Jesus did. And may you help us to fall in line with him in relationship with you. We, um, we want nothing more than for your glory and for our good, which met at the cross. And so we thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.